0: Hi, I'm Katil Hayek. Welcome. Today, my guest is Sabiha Alush. I will speak with Sabiha about her new article, "This intersecting Intersectionality in the Time of a Queer Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Hi, Sabiha. Welcome to Status. Uh,
1: hello, and uh, Thank you for hosting me.
0: Congrats on a new uh, terrific article.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: Sabiha, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Um, I'm currently a PhD candidate and a teaching fellow at the Center for Gender Studies at SOAS. Yeah, I'm about to have my VIVA or thesis defense in November. Um, I can tell you a little bit more about my research. Actually, uh, my PhD examines what I call everyday practices of love in contemporary Lebanon. So I use this uh, love, you know, as, a, um, as an umbrella term, but also as a point of entrance, let's say, to, you know, unpack gender and sexuality discourses in contemporary Lebanon. And most notably to demystify, you know, some of the yeah, myth about uh, uh, sex and sexuality in Lebanon.
0: Sabiha, I'm curious to know uh, more uh, what did is- inspire you to write your new article about the uh, intersectionality and Syrian refugees in Lebanon?
1: Yeah, this is uh, actually a very big, um, you know, questions. And I have quite a few several things, you know, to think about and mention in this regard. So I think the most, like, the most basic and biggest point for me was how traumatic, you know, and uh, bloody, let's say, The summer itself, you know, of two thousand fourteen, was. It's important that I mention that, uh, you know, when I started recollecting these narratives, that ultimately made their way to the article in Kohl. I was originally in Lebanon to do fieldwork for my PhD, so the article wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't my my priority. Let's say it wasn't even on my mind. But then, you know, that summer was particularly, yeah, violent. There were so-called, you know, sectarian clashes in uh, my hometown, in Tripoli. Um, there were what became called retaliation against Hezbollah in the Dahi uh, neighborhood. Um, there was the war on Gaza, um, you know, in August, um, in Ramadan. And then, you know, when you start doing your field work, and especially in the first few weeks, you sort of throw yourself everywhere. So I was meeting a lot of you know, different individuals, whether they were scholars, ordinary people, uh, interlocutors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, I came across amazing, you know, young scholars uh, from the region and working, you know, on issues in the region, and that was very inspiring for me. And at the same time, you know. You could see, like, lots of, you know, Western scholars sort of, like, flocking uh, to the region or starting to write about, uh, you know, the crisis of the Syrian refugees. Uh, This was also, like, this is the climate in which I was. And then eventually I was like, okay, maybe I can do something, you know, about this. Talk, you know, from, you know, the position of Middle Eastern scholars working on the Middle East about you know a topic that's very i think close to my heart especially when we look right at the whole discourse um, against the syrian refugee yeah like th- this was the beginning right but originally my article was going to be much more theoretical it's been three years in the making so eventually you know when things started to become more concrete i was like okay i believe in grounded work i want to do you know Grounded work, basically, um, gather, you know, empirical data as much as I can. And this is where, you know, I started um, meeting, you know, like uh, interlocutors specifically for the purpose, you know, of the article and ask them specific questions. And when Kohler made their um, call for papers, I was like, amazing. Like, this is the ideal platform, you know, for the article. And, um, yeah, and I went there. But mostly I wanted to do some grounded work, you know, based on what seems to be a quite complex, you know, theorizing when we talk about intersectionality and assemblage, because a part of me is a bit, um, um, I don't know, it's somewhere between disappointed and appalled, let's say. In the most recent writings, you know, about uh, IR and uh, global politics and like the extent of abstract theorization that you find in some of these articles, especially when they speak about drones warfare. I mean, I don't know, maybe to be polite, I find it somewhat unacceptable, but maybe also condescending, you know, for the people who live, you know, in these areas of the world that are being bombarded by these drones day and day and night. And I just didn't like the disconnect, right, between the theory and the lived reality. So, yeah. Quite a few things, but they all did contribute, you know, for me, like wanting to put this article forward.
0: Uh, that's like actually gets me to my next point, uh, which I'm uh, very interested to learn more about uh, the intersectional analysis that you follow in your research because you analyze uh, discourses uh, such as uh, Syrian new invasion, but also you build that on the lived experiences of LGBT. Uh, Syrian refugees in Lebanon and their uh, stories. Uh, so, can you tell us a little bit about why intersectional analysis is important in your research, and wh- what do you think is uh, uh, missing in uh, in the other research uh, that uh, follow identity politics?
1: mm mm-hmm. I think there are three parts of uh, you know to this question. Um, you know, like in my paper, I talk about what I conceive as Syrian. Uh, Neo-invasion, right, and I based it on, um, basically I trace, let's say I trace like its roots or origins to the Cedar, what became known as the Cedar Revolution, and of course the appropriation of the elite uh, ruling class uh, of, you know, of this uh, spontaneous, let's say, moment of national unity um, between courts, obviously, because it wasn't as united as, uh, you know, as it might appear from pictures. But um, not everyone was happy, right, when I came up with this, uh, you know, I don't know, concept, let's call it, of Syrian neo-invasion, especially when you look at mainstream and liberal and non-critical understandings, right, of of what a refugee population uh, consists of or do or how we should, uh, you know, engage with it. You know, like uh, I was accused of being, of course, anti Lebanese, uh, borderline racist towards my own kind, etc., etc. But I do stand by, uh, you know, the concept, especially that I think I framed it really, really clearly. You know, we're talking mostly about the interplay, right, between uh, the elite, uh, the ruling class, but also class and uh, political loyalty, which is itself like an extension, right, of the of the political system you know that uh, that is in work in Lebanon so yeah it was like the Syrian invasion was more like the let's say backdrop right against which uh, my intersectional analysis takes place now why intersectional alas- analysis i think you know like coming from a feminist uh, critical feminist let's say right because these days there are seems to be a lot of feminists out there but um, who do not necessarily understand right intersectionality positionality privilege etc so yeah coming from a critical feminist scholarship but also you know based and working on the middle east um i I worry right first of all let's define a little bit intersectionality so basically intersectionality tells us that you know when we want to think in in the context of politic of identity politics you know, I, my identity is not simply a woman, it's not simply a man, it's not simply an Arab, a European, etc. So it's more like intersections. So when I say I'm a Lebanese, you know, Arab woman, you know, we have to think about these three categories intersecting together, right? It's not that they are coming together or intentions, or maybe they are sometimes, right, on an everyday to day basis, but That's the whole point, to think about, you know, these different categories that that basically shape every subject, uh, every single one of us. And intersectionality, I find it really important coming from a post-colonial, you know, perspective. I worry about the current sectarian uh, divide, you know, that are happening in the region whether it's in terms of religion as a uh, sect, but also in terms of ethnicity. I worry about the current events, you know, between Iraq and Kurdistan. I worry about the increased, uh, you know, this uh, Shia-Sunni schism that's taken place in the region. And, um, of course, when we think about these, when we, when we apply a gender lens, and uh, we think about the extent of the personal status code, right, on men and women, then again, we have all these inequalities, right? Inequalities in the sense there are different citizens, different levels of citizenships, you know, with the intersection of sect, for example, and gender, you know, producing different uh, results, you know, in terms of bureaucracy, demographic uh, management, etc., uh, etc. Et and then, of course, there's the issue of class, right? So when I was doing my fieldwork, sometimes it stuck me that Class seems to change everything, right? Like, all of a sudden, whatever your identity is, like, people are willing to forget or make an exception for you, you know, if you're from a particular class. So, of course, there are different ways to think about class. Um, you know, at the it could be just a symbolic thing, right? It could be very much material, etc. But, yeah, it made me think about them. But also in terms, you know, of intersectionality, I couldn't, un- like, it was really complex to understand the the contradictions you know that my uh, interlocutors faced like one day everything would be okay let's say and my interlocutors let you know to remind everyone they are non-normative uh, Syrian also refugees so we already have three categories right who are based in Lebanon and um, I think the story of uh, taha a borrowed name obviously that is that figures in the journal makes it very clear. So, I think it makes sense uh, to speak a little bit about Taha for, uh, you know, our uh, listeners. So, Taha is alawite he's Syrian, yeah, he came to Lebanon before the, you know, events in Syria. He didn't necessarily come as a refugee, he simply came as a migrant, let's say, right? These are another two categories to think about. Being a refugee is not the same as migrant, why do we use them interchangeably, etc. So, Taha arrived to Lebanon and he was... Um, sharing a flat with a group of young Sunni men in Beirut. And for, you know, three, four years, everything was going fine in his house. According to him, like, they had a very good, uh, you know, a respectful uh, life, uh, sharing a flat together, paying their rents on time, etc. And then, you know, eventually, in the summer of 2014, his flatmates kicked him out because they had had enough with uh, you know, Hezbollah taking uh, participating alongside Bashar al-Assad troops in Syria.
0: I want here to clarify that all these uh, young men were Syrian and all of them uh, were within uh, LGBT spectrum. So the main conflict came later from kind of the sectarian background, right?
1: Uh, cor- uh, correct. Correct. Actually, the flatmates were, they were all Lebanese, uh, but he had similar, uh, pro- you know, he had similar stories with his Syrian friends, you know, who were Sunni. So, again, lots of categories, you know, to th- think about. What made them change their mind? Like, what, what what, happened? You would think that, okay, these non-normative, you know, individuals, young men come together, they find, you know, they, f- they forge safe spaces together, whether it's in sharing, you know, a cafe together, or sharing a flat, or, you know, going to specific spaces where they feel safe. And then everything, yeah, something happened, right? Something snapped, something became different. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, like, "How, how can we explain this sudden change, right? If identity politics really are an intersection, which they are, of course, they are. But I still wanted to understand more. I wanted to address it from a time let's say, you know, approach. What happens to identity politics when they shift over time, right? Or when the larger climate, you know, change around them. And this is why I followed uh, Jasbir Puar's approach. Um, Yes, we must pay attention to the intersections of all these categories, but we should also account, you know, for the different ways in which um, different systems, you know, produce or condition, or compel, you know, this identity politics. So for example, you know, we think about racism or sexism or homophobia as these separate systems, but the truth is most of them are supported and sustained by a very similar structure, right? Unfortunately, a very Eurocentric one um, that, let's say, pressure uh, human beings and human life into a singular right way to live, you know, feel, look, eat talk, behave, etc. So these are the things, you know, that I had on my mind when I was...
0: doing the, the, the article. Sabiha, based on your intersectional analysis, you are uh, also very critical from the limitations of asylum organization in regard to LGBT applications and how they are very, like, uh, Western, stereotypical uh, in terms of understanding uh, sexuality and uh, gen- and gender performance. So can you tell us more about that and the alternatives you envision to the current kind of process and the framework of asylum organisation?
1: Yes of course i mean again right this is a very big um, question i wish i had all the answers you know to i wish i could envision you know, the master plan. But it's way more complicated than that. So, yes, I had a big issue. And I think most critical scholars, you know, um, who think about migration, sexuality, would uh, agree with me. Like, you know, asylum organizations, they really, like, you know, like, at some point when doing the, you know, writing this article, I was like, oh, you know, okay, maybe Joseph Massad was right after all, right? So... Of course, because you go into this uh, whole um, area, right, of uh, gay international uh, versus agency. I mean, we can, of course, have a whole debate just on the Joseph Massad debate, but I couldn't help but see how international organizations, especially those, you know, in asylum and migration, really sort of, and to borrow Massad's word, force, you know, force, uh, non-normative individuals into a sort of east or west binary. Uh, The amount of enactment of performances of uh, storytelling, you know, like they have to go through. And it's not, it's, it's really, it's not kind, you know, like Yeah, literally, literally, like just forcing them, you know, into an East-West binary. And I think this became very clear in the asylum organizations. But we can also look at it from a reverse uh, angle, right? It's not always about non-normative individuals. So oftentimes you want to talk about, oh, you know, let's save uh, all the persecuted gays uh, from ISIS and welcome them in the West. But at the same time, you know, there are a lot of different, you know, of sexual practices in the region that could lead to persecution, but because they are not labeled particularly as, uh, you know, non-normative, yeah, they, they they don't even count, you know, as uh, persecuted. And in this regard, I'm drawn directly on the recommendation of Abu Assab Nasruddin and Gretrik so they wrote an amazing report for the Center for Transnational Development and Collaboration and uh, I think this is the exactly the kind of reports you know that uh, international asylum uh, organizations should be should be looking at and basically like their findings they, they, I think they went to 22 countries, they went to 22 countries and recollected data, and their recommendation can be summed up in a shift from what they call sexual orientation and gender identity to what they term sexual practices and gender performance. So if this, you know, if these are too big of words, like one example to illustrate this, if we think, for example, of, a les- you know, self-identified lesbian woman could be in Egypt, in Lebanon, but let's say you know in the Middle East more broadly, uh, to you know to stay uh, in in line with the language of the report, this lesbian woman woman is more likely to be persecuted for her you know status as woman than as her status you know as lesbian. So again, we have this disconnect, right? Uh, gender performance, sexual practice, gender identity, sexual orientation, um, they're very fluid, they're very much in flux, they're very much changing, shifting, you know, and these asylum organizations insisting, you know, on on, on following particular uh, terminologies, definitions, uh, labeling everyone, boxing everyone, is definitely not helpful at all. And uh, not to add that, you know, what happens to the rest of the uh, Syrian refugees, migrants, why should it be much easier for non-normative individuals to be able to claim asylum, you know, compared to the rest? What if, you know, you're non-normative but come from a very privileged position, whereas, you know, very heterosexual, heteronormative refugees uh, do not, you know, come uh, from such a a privileged uh, position. So I guess, yeah, all these are questions, right, that deserves uh, serious thinking on behalf of both uh, scholars, practitioners, but also clearly, you know, policymakers and the bigger guys i would say
0: Sabiha, you told us you told us a little bit about your phd research uh, at the beginning i'm wondering is there other projects
1: um actually there are two projects i am working on clearly i have a Pensioned for difficult conversations. So um, one article is going to speak about on about the militarization of sexuality in the region. So basically, I'm looking at um, I would say the war on terror and counterinsurgency in the region using a sexuality lens. And um, basically, I draw on an array of examples of how certain deviant deviant sexual practices. In the region allowed the U.S., you know, to maintain its hegemonic and political hegemony in the region. So that's one. Uh, the second one is very different. It's closer to my uh, anthropologist side of me. So I draw on feminist technology studies and uh, to argue basically that uh, the intersection of the divine with the masculinities and modernity in Lebanon. And I base it on an ethnography actually, of uh, a group of uh, working class men uh, yeah, in Lebanon.
0: On behalf of the Status team, I would like uh, to thank you Saviha Allous for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Cathy, again. And thank you, Status for hosting me. I'm
0: Cathy Hayek. Thank you for listening.